0: says tech can't be human. It's a little bit deceptive because it's such a simple question. What's the big thing? What am I doing about it? And how can I do it better? Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast.
1: Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized Cyber Asset Attack Surface Management, Chasm, as a category in their Hype Cycle for Network Security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your team's time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do.
2: What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris.
1: Yes, sir.
2: Welcome back to the show.
1: Glad to be back again. Our guest this episode is Michelle Wooker. Michelle is the founder of Gray Rhino and Company, where her team helps decision makers to develop strategies clear from under-addressed risks. Michelle is also the author of The Gray Rhino and a new book that she's titled, You Are What You Risk. A lot of elements in risk, I'm assuming that's going to be introduced this episode. Michelle, welcome to the podcast.
0: Delighted to be here with you today.
2: Michelle, I watched your TED Talk, which has, at this point, received millions of views, and it's really insightful and powerful when you're thinking about risk, seeing the things that are right in front of you. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today.
0: Sure. My background is first as a financial journalist and then as a think tank executive. Lots of work in financial crisis and economic policy and turnarounds. And I took all of that, brought it together, starting with the question of uh, why Argentina sunk into a terrible debt crisis and Greece had a similar uh, challenge but actually got their act together. And I started asking, why do some people see a big scary thing coming at them and actually deal with it and others don't? And that's what led to the gray rhino, the, the, the big two-ton thing with a horn coming at you. That's the big and obvious and dangerous and dynamic. And it's gray because, as you may have learned, like I did in grade school, there are two species of rhinos called black and white, and neither one of them is that color. They're actually both gray, mm. and that is an important part of the metaphor for me because a lot of us assume that if there's something obvious, then, well, of course, we're dealing with it, So, or somebody's dealing with it, so we, should, we don't need to think about it, and that becomes very, very dangerous because we often take for granted our ability to deal with the gray rhinos coming at us, so I came up with the image as a way to create an emotional connection and help people to think about something abstract and get them to take a fresh look at all of the big obvious problems they know they have and think about how well they're reacting and why and what they could do better.
2: This is a perfect analogy for things in the world. This is even really great for folks in technology and cybersecurity because we deal with gray rhinos all the time. But every once in a while, the news puts out the information about this black swan. Like you talk about In your TED Talk, what is the difference between the black swan and the gray rhino?
0: So the black swan is a concept that came out right at the beginning of the financial crisis. And it came out in 2007. And of course, the the financial crisis really blew up in 2008. And the idea is that a bunch of Europeans... Only ever saw white swans. And so they went to Australia and they saw black swans and they freaked out. They said, We never even thought of this. So a black swan is the thing that's so unforeseeable and unimaginable that you can't get your head around it. And it's really an argument for broadening your imagination, but also for helping you to realize that the world's a lot more uncertain than you realize it is. And because the subprime crisis and all of the dominoes that, that fell after it in the financial markets were a surprise to a lot of people. The, the concept really resonated, but it got misused as a cop-out. And so people would say, oh, Black Swan, nobody could have seen it coming, when in fact, a lot of us did. I mean, I had an apartment on the Upper, upper West Side of Manhattan that nearly doubled in value in four years. And it was a first apartment and I sold it. It was pretty clear to me that this was not going to last. The other part about the black swan is I think people were really reaching for a way to anticipate things. So they would say, what's the next black swan? When by definition, you can't predict what the next black swan is. And I often say that behind every black swan is a crash of gray rhinos a crash being the zoologically correct word for a herd. And part of my point is that if you don't deal with the obvious things that you know need dealing with, it's much more likely that a bunch of these obvious things are going to fall apart and make each other worse. They'll all fall apart at the same time. And that certainly is some of what happened in 2008.
1: You know, this analogy of black swans and gray rhinos almost reminds me of when people say, you know, addressing the elephant in the room. Like, a lot of the times you'll say that, hey, this black swan is, we wouldn't know about it. It's unforeseen, unavoidable. But what you're describing is it probably isn't. And it's been there for a while and it's it's a big moving object. What are some of these examples of gray rhinos that you've experienced in your work? Like, what is the story behind finding a gray rhino that's right in front of us and also avoiding it.
0: Sure. And I'm so glad that you picked up on this important part about it, that that it's moving. And of course, the elephant in the room is also a very large gray thing, but it sort of normalizes doing and saying nothing. It's something that's embarrassing that everybody knows about. And by definition, they don't talk about it. And that's not What I want to do. I want to get people to realize that even when you're talking about something, you might not be dealing with it very well. And the concept, when I first started thinking about it, I had dinner with all my friends and asked them, you know, what's an obvious problem that either got dealt with really well or didn't? Climate change, huge one. There are a lot of people out there talking and doing and trying to solve the problem. But there also are a lot of people who aren't. Uh, financial crisis, obviously, is where the, the concept came from. Uh, but it's much more broadly applied, not just in policy or finance, but to business strategy, to things that are very common, like, say, succession planning or industry disruption, you know, particularly digital technologies or safety Issues. And then what really surprised me was that as I was on book tour all around the world for the Gray Rhino, at almost every single event, someone would say, How do I apply this to my personal life? Right. And I've actually used it with friends and family and a friend who was, you know, years behind on turning in his tax returns. And I'm like, hey, didn't you read my book? He actually went and sat with the accountant, got a couple of years. The the rest of them are still waiting. But it was a start. Or, you know. What do you mean? You've got all these respiratory problems. Why don't you go to the ENT doctor? Didn't you read my book? (laughs) In a weird way, it often would would work. And uh, it was a real surprise because I don't really write about self help kind of things. But I realized very quickly that if you're the kind of person who doesn't pay attention to things in your day to day life, you're also much more likely to let things go. In your professional life. And so even if you're focused on a professional problem, understanding how well you deal with the gray rhinos coming at you or not is really, really important because there's some parts you can't change, but there are other parts of your life that you can, like the people you surround you with, the habits that you have, your environment, you know, even what you eat for lunch or the temperature in the room or the tempo of the music can affect how likely you are to pay attention to a big problem and to do something about it.
2: So what is the mechanism behind that? Because I, I, it almost sounds like there's a subconscious wish that if you don't, give voice to a problem. If you don't act on a problem, then maybe it would just kind of go away and get swept under the rug. What? Why do people do that? Why do people stare at big problems and do nothing?
0: That's a great question. And it's important for people to realize that they shouldn't be ashamed that they do this. It's a supernatural biological response that sometimes when something is so big, if you really let yourself absorb the entirety of it, you can get paralyzed or collapse because it's too much. So our brains are set up to let information in bits at a time. I mean, like a, a death in the family or a death of a friend. Uh, people respond differently, but I'm the kind who's really numb at the beginning. And I don't cry until I've kind of prepared myself and can let that go. And so we do absorb things slowly. Also, if we don't feel we have the power to fix a situation, then it doesn't do a whole lot of good to freak out about it because you've got all sorts of things that you do feel you can deal with uh, that your attention is better used for. But often we don't realize how much power we have to deal with situations. And so there there are lots and lots of, of psychological blocks On individuals and then also in groups. I mean, nobody wants to be the one who is sitting around the table and says, hey, watch out for this, because nobody wants to hear it. So these problems are tough for each one of us. But then when you're together with a bunch of people, particularly if everybody's very similar to you, you are much less likely to be able to stand up and articulate the big thing that's coming at you, much less do something about it.
1: It almost sounds like sometimes these things are hidden in plain sight, but other times we try to turn a blind eye to addressing these, these gray rhinos. I would love to hear what are some of the most common situations? Like, is it, I know that you're helping a lot of entrepreneurs and businesses avoid risk, but you've also mentioned that it can be used for your personal life. When was the last time you experienced one of these gray rhinos? Like what was the kind of the workflow here? What was, how'd you find it and what'd you do about it and how to change things ultimately?
0: You know, it's funny. People tend to think about this. They really want to focus on the, it's right in front of you, but you can't really see it. And it's kind of mysterious. And (laughs) it's very simple. Ask yourself, sometimes close your eyes, you know, picture a giant gray rhino coming at you. And then think, okay, what are the big problems in my life that I need to deal with? And just that moment of looking at the really obvious things is so simple, but so powerful. So I ask people to ask themselves, what's my gray rhino? Whether it's personal, whether it's for your business, uh, whether it's in your community or globally, it's like, what's the big thing that I'm worried about? About. And that's really all you need to do to see it is just focus a little bit and say it out loud. That lets you think about the next step, which is okay, how am I dealing with this? Why? Who are the other people who need to deal with this? How are they dealing with this? And why? And how can we do better? And when I delved in deeper to why people. Don't deal with things. I realize that there are different stages of reactions, very much like Elizabeth Kubler Ross's five stages of grief. You know, starting with with denial and going to acceptance. This starts with denial and goes to action, and there are different obstacles at each one of these five stages, and therefore different strategies that you can adopt to move closer to action, and so. A lot of risk analysis focuses on making lists of all these risks and then maybe do a heat map of of how probable it is and how impactful it's going to be and trying to guesstimate the probabilities. But most of these exercises don't put enough emphasis on the response. What am I doing about it and how is that response affecting the likelihood that this is going to go really far south, really fast. So it's a very, very important part of risk analysis, whether professionally or personally. And it's it's a little bit deceptive because it's such a simple question. What's the big thing? What am I doing about it? And how can I do it better?
1: The complexity of cloud infrastructure means every organization's security challenges are unique. Whether your challenge is threat hunting, policy management, cloud workload protection, or all of the above, Uptix helps you quickly identify and eliminate observability gaps in your security program. That's Uptix, analytics for the modern attack surface, observability for the modern defender. Check out Uptix by visiting upticks.com. That's U-P-T-Y-C-S dot Thank you Uptix for sponsoring this episode. I
2: just watched a movie over the break uh, called Don't Look Up. I don't know if you've seen it, but it sounds I like am it.
0: dying to watch that. I've heard so much about it. And the funny thing is I was just involved in a conference recently where we talked about asteroids and uh, you know predicting rare events and what are you going to do about it. And it was very interesting. Uh, an asteroid expert told us that about 60% of the asteroids out there are unlikely to, to hit soon. Mm-hmm. But the rest of them, they have absolutely no idea mm-hmm. at all. And so it's a, it's a mix of, okay, there's some in the future that we can think about. We're going to try these experiments of you know shooting things into space to try to break them up. But we have no idea about which bigger ones are going to hit us. And the truth is, a really, really big one, we don't have the capacity to deal with. And so in that case what's the point of worrying about it if there's nothing you can do about it?
2: Right. If you watch that movie, I'd be interested. Definitely message me after you watch it because I feel like they took your book and they turned it on its head and made like a satire of it because it sounds like all of the same things that you're talking about with all these other gray rhinos. This was like a huge gray rhino that a lot of people saw coming, but a lot of folks turned a blind eye to it. They were a little delusional and maybe even trying to profit off it. I don't want to give a lot of it away, but let's talk a little bit about the second part to this. You you wrote uh, Gray Rhinos, which is the, the first part, but you have an additional book. Tell us a little bit about what a risk fingerprint is for the average individual.
0: Yeah, so the new book is You Are What You Risk. Uh, it came out as a very much as a sequel to The Gray Rhino. Uh, the Gray Rhino focuses a lot more at the The event that is unfolding and your responses at that point. And you are what you risk focuses on why each one of us responds the way that we do to gray rhinos. You know, some people are quite good at it and other people, not so much. They tend to get flattened. And so there there are three sets of influences on these, which go together to create what I call a risk fingerprint which is very much like an actual fingerprint is a biometric identifier. And my point is that the risks you take tell the world who you are, what's important to you, what you're willing to lose, how you make your risk choices, whether it's it's impulsive or methodical, and by understanding all of the different elements of your risk fingerprint, you can become more self-aware, make better decisions, and take smarter risks with hopefully better outcomes. So both your physical fingerprint and your risk fingerprint have three parts. The first is innate. It's genetic. It's, you know, the, the, the whorls and arches and loops on your finger are something that your genetics create. It's, it's why it's such a good marker because it's unique to you. And your innate personality is very much like that. And I, I work with a, a tool called the Risk Type Compass, which draws from psychometric analysis which is controversial. I, I, I'm, I don't really have a, a horse in that race. <laughs> but you know, I think all of these tests are are useful as long as you understand their limitations. So that looks at how cautious or how impulsive you are you know, how methodical or impulsive you are in dealing with with something and how calm or how anxious and those elements combine into eight different risk types which describe the way that you respond and those are things that you can't change so that's the the whirls and the arches and the loops is your risk type the second part is your experiences your upbringing the risks that you've taken that have worked out the ones that didn't work out so well, the unexpected shocks and surprises, and all of these elements, which also are external to you. You couldn't really choose them, although going forward, you have some influence on the experiences that you make yourself uh, vulnerable to. But that's like if you cut your finger, or if you burn your finger on a flame, you'll have a scar or an imprint on your physical fingerprint. And those experiences indelibly change your risk fingerprint. And the third part is what you can think of as uh, whether you do manual labor and have calluses or use lots of nice, soft-smelling lotion and, uh, and have you know, very, very soft, pliable hands, or whether you spend too much time in the bath- bathtub and, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> so that's your environment and your habits and your processes. So in terms of risk fingerprints, that's the people you surround yourself with. It's whether you look for the right information that will help you to make good decisions. But it also, bizarrely, is your physical environment. Uh, There are a lot of research showing that if it's cold, you're likely to be more risk-seeking, If you have spicy food for lunch, whether you like it or not, you are going to be more risk-seeking and more risk-tolerant for a few hours after lunch. Mm -hmm. Uh, The tempo of the music you're listening to, uh, all of these things affect the stress chemicals in your body and your heart rate and all of these physical indicators that also affect your risk choices. And self-awareness, to me, is the most important of all of the elements in this this third group of influences is that once you are aware of what makes you more comfortable or less comfortable taking risks, if you are a very impulsive person who tends to leap before you look, or if you go on and on and on and have to ask many people and you wait so long that you can't even make a decision, those are things that you can offset by picking the right people around you setting up the right processes the you know if you're going to send that email telling someone where they can go have a habit to save it and then you know send it to your best friend and and delete it uh, you know the things that you can do to change how you're making risk decisions or other people for example if you're asking your boss for a raise and you're totally stressed about it go to that thai restaurant down the street order the spiciest thing on the menu <laughs> ask them to (laughs) crank the temperature down low, and to put on some uh, upbeat music. So that'll get you all set to to take this risk of asking for the raise.
1: Love it. I'm definitely going to use those techniques to really motivate myself when I need to take risks. And it also makes me think when other people are taking risks. I've been around a lot of risk takers. I'm sure we all have been and some people, I don't like the the risk that they take i I can't relate to it. I can't understand it, but I know that you've been introducing another term, risk empathy. I would love to hear you know what goes into that and what exactly is it
0: so risk empathy starts with understanding your own risk fingerprint and then seeking to understand why other people have the risk fingerprints that they do. And this can start a conversation that helps you to understand their motivations, what they care about, and what makes them more or less comfortable taking a risk that you want them to take. It can also help to ease conflicts. Uh, My favorite example is you're on a business trip and tight expense account, you've got to share the cab to the airport with your business colleague and one of you likes to leave lots of time to get to the gate, mm. and the other one likes to rush up to the gate and see how close you can come to missing the airplane. <laughs> and what are you gonna do? How are you going? To, the two of you gonna decide what time to get to the airport? And when you look at that through your different risk fingerprints, it's it becomes not just, oh, my coworker is an idiot, but you've got a basis for understanding why the other person is making the choice that they are, and seeing if you can come up with a choice that works better for both of you. And this sort of thinking is so powerful in relationships, uh, in teams, uh, in investment decisions. I spoke with, in an interview in the book, he's quoted, a trading coach who talked about one of the teams that he worked with, where one of the guys was this super aggressive leap before you look type, and the other person was more methodical. And by working together, by applying each of their strengths and offsetting their weaknesses, that's how they became one of the very best performing teams. Or there's some other cases where, like like my family, when we're trying to figure out what time to go to church, and my parents ended up taking two different cars because they just couldn't agree on it. Oh, so sometimes wow. you just got to agree to disagree. <laughs> uh, but it's 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 hugely important also, you know, if you're if you're dealing with a client as as a financial advisor, as a as a you know, sort of a technical advisor, cybersecurity advisor, understanding what's going to make your client take a risk, pursue an opportunity or avoid the kind of risks that you take by <laughs> ignoring risk signals you know this sort of passive risk the risk by doing nothing understanding that about your client or about your teammates or your investors uh, is so powerful it's it's powerful for marketing in understanding how to sell your products, understanding the kind of safety standards you need. I mean, Volvo did a great job with this. And if you're selling your products in another country, for example, you need to know that we all think that products from other countries are much more likely to be less safe than the ones from our own country, you know, unless it's somebody like Volvo who's done such a great job with their safety image or or you know Qantas airlines.
2: You know, it's so interesting that you're talking about this this dynamic between almost like two extremes when you're talking about the person that wants to push it to the last minute. Maybe they don't want to risk wasting their time. So that's why they go to the airport so late. And the person that wants to go early is they don't want to risk missing out on money loss if they miss the flight. But if you bring them together and they're able to have the song and dance and find the balance, you almost get the best of both worlds because you don't waste each other's time, but then you also don't miss the flight ultimately. And so I think about this in terms of my business partner and best friend, Ron Eddings, we have a lot that's similar between the two of us, but there's also a lot that's different. He's very methodical. He's very detail-oriented. Where I'm not, I'm more visionary, big-picture, big, big think. But we balance each other out because he pushes me to be a little bit more methodical and be a little bit more explanatory around the visions that I have, and vice versa. I, I ask him to sort of bring all of the the ingenuity and innovation in his mind out to the forefront. Is this really where the benefits come from from having this? song and dance about risk, or is it something else?
0: It's such an important conversation to have. And there's a a couple of business partners, Barb and Mark, who I interviewed in the book, and it was very, very similar. If one person can help to create a sense of security, then it allows the other person to do the big dreaming, to come up with the, the big ideas that can really Move you forward. And it's also worth thinking about if you've got a team of all lawyers or all engineers, you might not be making the best risk decisions because a lot of people tend to cluster by career, depending on their risk type in the first place. I had a very interesting conversation with a guy in Chicago, a lawyer by training, who at one point was both chief counsel and head of marketing. Which are two completely different kinds of brains. And, you know, we joked about him having perhaps a split personality to deal with the the different kinds of uh, risk dynamics inherent to each position. So I think it's important in in recruiting, in assigning teams, in promoting people to understand how they deal with risk. And one more thing about the going to the airport is there are two parts of of risk. There's one you know, how sensitive you are to the risk. And then there's how risky you think that it is. You know, you can be really stressed about risk, but you might judge a particular risk to be much riskier or less. Those go together into your behaviors. And what's interesting about the person who wants to get to the gate at the last minute is it's possible that they are just as stressed about missing the plane as the person who responds by getting there super early But it's their way of asserting control over the situation. And there's some research about risk perceptions that says that the more control you feel over a situation, the more risk you're willing to take, the more risk that you are comfortable with. So it's quite possible that these two business colleagues, even though they've got very different approaches, both are really freaked out about possibly losing the plane. And so understanding the motivations, that part of the risk fingerprint is really, really important in making any sort of decisions in in co- cooperating, in collaborating.
2: Michelle, so I'm sure there's someone that's listening right now that's hearing this and and everything is making sense, but they're still a little bit concerned about the risks in their work, uh, the risks in life, the risks in the world. There's always so much going on. What is that one piece of advice you would have for someone to step into these decisions, these situations with more confidence using some of the knowledge that you've gleaned over your entire career?
0: I think the most important thing is to understand what's most important to you, what you are not willing to risk. I think back to when I was in my 20s and uh, I, from early on, had a big workaholic problem. You know, I pushed really, really hard, too hard, to the point of getting myself sick. Uh, And I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and had to take a six week medical leave from work. And when I was coming back, well, certainly when I was gone, I did a lot of reflecting. And I got back to my job, which was super interesting and challenging. But I had realized that it wasn't what I was, quote unquote, supposed to be doing, that it wasn't the best use of my talents. So I could have gone back to the financially stable job, or I could quit and write my first book. And I had this feeling that if I went back to the job that I wasn't supposed to be in, I would get sick again. So even though my career and professional life was very important to me, At that moment, my health was more important because if I didn't pay attention to that, then I wouldn't have the health or the job. And I think a lot of people have been making that kind of calculus over the past year. We're seeing record numbers of people leaving their jobs. I just read yesterday that something like 47 or 48% of Americans were thinking about Leaving their jobs. In the past few months, every month we've got another record number of people leaving. And some people say, oh, well, they're willing to take more risks because of the pandemic. And that goes back to risk perception and priorities. And my thought is they've reorganized their priorities of what they're willing to lose or risk or not. And people are really reaching out to this sense of purpose and satisfaction and making a contribution and being treated and paid what you're worth. And so that's why they're making some of these changes. And in many of these cases, it's a really good risk for them personally and for the economy, because they're going and doing something that's going to be a lot more productive. And it's not that they are doing something riskier by quitting their jobs. I think that they've realized in many cases that the bigger risk is to stay in a job that's not a good fit. And that really goes down to this central point of what you're willing to lose, what you're willing to risk is basically who you are. That decision about what you're gonna do with your life tells everyone who you are just as much as your fingerprint on that glass at the airport with Global Entry tells people who you are.
2: Wow. That is super insightful. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on the mics with us for the folks that want to stay up to date with you, your research, your books, and all the great things that you have going on in your world. What are the best ways that people can do that?
0: So please come visit my website, the Gray with an A, although the E will get you there too. Uh, you can find me uh, on LinkedIn, Michelle Wooker, or on Twitter at Wooker, W-U-C-K-E-R. And I love meeting new people and, uh, and engaging on social media. So really encourage all of you to connect if, if this resonates with you.
1: Yes, we would highly recommend everyone to connect. Check out the book. We'll also drop the link to the resources that Michelle just listed in the show notes for everyone to stay up to date with all the great things she's working on. With that, we'll see everyone next time.
2: If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over
1: coffee.